History, Rabbi Blyweiss, this is lecture 123. Yesterday was really 122. We mislabeled it, uh, at least in the uh, beginning of the, of the talk yesterday. Um, today, we're talking about, there is a rhyme and a reason to the way I'm ordering things, even though clearly we are kind of moving away from a chronological flow of history, and I'm going more topic by topic. Um, but I think the Mizrahi, if, we're, if we can picture ourselves sort of hovering around the 60s, the Mizrahi emerged. Certainly the main um, thrust of a movement of, a, of an ideology that we associate with the Israeli uh, national religious population really emerged in, in reaction to the Six-Day War, the uh, development of the Gush Emunim, and the settler movement, which is a mainstay. There's certainly other aspects of that movement. It's a complex uh, it's not really a movement per se, it's a complex sector in society that's really more of a spectrum. Uh, and you can say the same is true about lots of different sectors, it's true about Haredi as well. It's certainly a spectrum um, and from different extremes, I mean I guess from our interest from less from to more from, I think this was a broader spectrum. The less religious people, self-identified Mizrahi or Dati Lumi are really not very from. And those who are the self-identified, we've used the term Khardal, Haredi Leumi, whatever label you want to slap on them, um, tend to be extremely, what are from me, knowledgeable Tamari Chachamim, the women dress with utmost sneers, impeccable standards of halachic observance, different ideology than what you'd find in the, in the Hasidic world or in the mainstream um, yeshivish world, which includes Sephardi and Ashkenazim. Um, sadly, today we speak about the different sectors. That's the way it is. But again, that's our that's 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 we're just we're we're just students of history. We, we ours is not to defend or make ex, make make uh, um, ex, uh, excuses for. It's simply to try to understand where we find ourselves today. Um, and I, I whenever we do this, the it, it's something. It's something I don't know. I feel a certain reluctance to engage in these kinds of descriptions of the sectors. Um, I, I, as you know, I don't hold back my criticisms, my own editorial comments on the subject, which then inevitably might make me sound intolerant, which is breaking one of the modern PC Ten Commandments. Not allowed to be intolerant. I'm not intolerant. I'm critical. I think that's different. Meaning, I think as best I can, I try to acknowledge the good. There's immense good that we'll find in the Mizrahi movement, and there are, I believe, are deviations from proper hashkafa, as one finds in the Gedolim. But I'm going to elaborate on that. Um, we have said before that the Mizrahi and Eretz Israel are different, are related, overlapping, but distinct in their ideology from modern Orthodox. Modern Orthodox, particularly in America, but in other areas, we, we touched on, let's say, what would be called modern Orthodox in places like England and Australia and South Africa, but um, that's different too. Those are all; these are all different, particularly to their own geographical areas and cultures. That in, in America, there really is a movement, and again, there's a spectrum of modern Orthodoxy, but there is. Uh, there's a central rabbinic figure, there's a Levitchik, there's a flagship institution, now there are a few institutions, uh, and, and, and there's, there are whole organizations um, that, uh, that are defined as modern orthodox. In places like Britain, not so much, and that's why people can be sort of a little bit here, a little bit there, and more all over the place. It's not as, as distinct. And in Eretz Israel, it takes a different uh, formation and different ideology because you're living in the Holy Land and the issues are pressing and particularly politics become so central and for this movement, the Mizrahi movement, politics are really at the fore and we'll talk about that too. Go ahead though. 
the uh, in America, in modern Orthodox, I heard is the fastest growing sect of. Uh, that makes Judaism. sense. It's 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 um, if somebody is becoming newly committed, and we talked about yesterday many reasons why people have become newly committed to observance and they're questioning they're seeking reform and conservative which we've mentioned in the past are increasingly indistinguishable um, there are there, there are theoretical cosmetic differences but practically um, most American Jews don't can't tell the difference between one and the other uh, and certainly not between them and, and reconstructionists and now they have humanists and there's renewal Judaism the, the, all the various uh, and, and isms and neo-orthodox Neo-Orthodoxy we associate more with Rosh Hashanah in Germany in the 19th century. Yeah, but it's there in the middle. Okay, fine. So maybe the people, everybody likes to be original. There's breakaways within breakaways. They welcome to the Jewish people. It's not just us. Um, if you think we're sectarian, remember the Christians are uh, ten times full. They, they, they have a larger population, but also many, many more um, groups. Anyway, what I was going to say was that there is an innate appeal to modern Orthodoxy especially since we find a lot of people who become modern orthodox as they identify themselves in America, that means that they belong to a synagogue and usually the Jewish identity is defined for American Jews based on where they pay their membership dues. It's an odd form of identification, but it certainly, it certainly is concrete. Pay, I know. And where they pay, where they, where they go, where they go to shul. We know in Israel, people are, uh, Americans are often surprised. My, my parents hear this all the time that, my, that their son is a rabbi in Israel. And they say, oh, what kind of a congregation does he lead? And they have to explain that sociology works differently here. There are very few. The congregational model is particular to, to exile, to diaspora life. In Eretz Israel, of course, we have shuls. They're the place where we daven, because we're obligated to daven. But the rabbi of the shul usually has a job, and it's not as a congregational rabbi. There are a couple exceptions to that rule as, that I'm familiar with in Israel, but generally speaking, very, very few make a living being a congregational rabbi. There really is no such thing. You can't make a living. You can't make a living. No, it's not true. Again, there are exceptions to this rule, but it's not the sociological model in a much more impoverished society, among other reasons, that you just don't have the money for, for such a luxury. Um, and and uh, it works differently here. It, it, and, and as a result, you know, we're there, you where you pay your membership, or perhaps where you send your kids, if you send your kids to, to, to day school, and then those schools are defined as, fill in the blank, modern orthodoxy, conservative, whatever it is, so then that, puts, that slaps the label on the person. Um, but since, in order to do that, it doesn't take much to pay membership dues, it just takes a bank account, um, so that people who are nominally religious could be called modern orthodox, right? Or not religious even, right? Nothing recognizably religious about these people, so it's quite loose terminology. In Israel, it tends to be less loose because you live in a place, the society is polarized. Sadly, you're either this, that, or the other thing. Uh, literally three options, secular, dati, or haridi. I mean, okay, there are variations and nuances between the three, but those, those that, that is a distinct. There's a very fine line between um, secular and dati. There's like another level. No, I disagree. They're different school systems. They're different school systems. Again, there, you, go, you send your kid to Mamlachti or you send your kid to Mamlachti Dati. That's a huge nafkamina. And you also define by which community you live in. The, the communities themselves, with some exceptions, there's a place called, for example, let's say Tekoa in the West Bank and south, south of Yushalayim that is self-consciously a mixed community. It's a strange experiment. Um, I don't think it's a good idea. They didn't ask my opinion. But what it means is that the religious kids get drawn after the secular kids and get involved in things the secular kids are doing. But 
other than that, the most religious communities, necessarily because religion requires a community and, 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 and separation from secular influences, even in the modern Orthodox world, you, you vote by where you live, and where you live defines you. Now you're saying in practice, there are, there are people who are Dati in Israel who don't look very religious. No, that's not what I mean. That's not what you mean. What do you mean then? No, there are those who can say with confidence, you know, I am Dati, and there are those who can say that I am secular Jew, but there are those in between who don't know. It's true. There is what they often refer to, a common word, increasingly common in Israel, is what's called misorti. I'll talk about this in the in continuation. All of this is, I'm speaking it now extemporaneously, not from my notes, but it's an introduction. Um, misorti could mean a lot of different things. We would roughly translate it as traditional, but as you hear even in the word traditional, it could mean whatever you want it to. And, and you're right, there is, there is that population as well. Uh, I, I agree. But still, in Israel, you're generally polarized. You're polarized by your costume, whatever clothes you wear, and you, um, you vote, literally you vote with your, your Knesset vote, when, when, the, when the elections come, and everybody knows everybody else how they voted. It's, your, your life is semi-public and transparent. And um, uh, yeah, that's whether you like it or not, that's, that's what it is. So we should try to understand it better, and that's what we're going to do now. Go ahead, last hey, question. Isn't Rabbi uh, Jonathan Sachs, who is the... Former chief rabbi of Britain, yeah. He doesn't classify himself as modern Orthodox? Oh, he does, most well, certainly. Oh, I thought so. No, so, definitely. Chief rabbi. Yeah, for sure. I'm just pointing out that in Britain, in Great Britain, you don't have the same institutions. And so the people, some of them are card-carrying, Zionistic, modern Orthodox. But often you have people who, simply the shul they go to is one variation of Orthodox. But their commitment is sometimes nominal both in practice and in just general how much time it how much it occupies their minds even. So it's like they go to show stuff do something they want to feel like Yeah. Yeah, fair description. It varies, it varies. There is Baruch Hashem, there, there's, there's all kinds of, there all, there's all kind of dynamism in Jewish life. There are Kiruv organizations doing fine work, bringing people back. Uh, I mean, I, I've worked this program called Seed, for example. I've, I've been Zofa, I've been privileged to guide the programs. These are people, most of the participants in the programs fit the description that, that, I, that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm giving right now, but there's, a, there's an enthusiasm, a desire to learn and to grow, and where they, what they do with it, you know, I'm sure they go in lots of different directions. You know, how they can sustain that and actually build a Jewish life and community based on that, that's all in formation right now. But um, still, it doesn't quite look, if you, if you stay in Britain for a while and you see how that life works, it's not quite the same as what's going on in America, which is much more established orthodoxy. This is our niche. It's a little more amorphous in, in England and in Australia. And, and, and certainly when you come to Israel, it looks a little different. Um, certainly the Mizrahi have a different spiritual focus. We've been tracing this development since the, remember this far back, the Pumul Shemitah. Arguably, or even before then, if you start talking about the Yeshuva Yashan versus the Yeshuva Chadash, remember these distinctions we talked about? The old world that, that, that insisted on relying on the Chalukah, the, the, the incoming, the little bit of money trickled in from, from abroad, where the emphasis was learning Torah, keeping mitzvahs in Eretz Israel, and the Yeshuva Chadash with their new idea, we're going to go out, leave the old traditional cities, start our own Moshevot, our own farming colonies, and be able to make it with our own uh, hard work, and um, it was the spirit of the new. And ever since then, and then, and then generally the Mizrahi, the term Mizrahi, you remember, was, was, um, was 
a division, there's a name for the division of the Chibat uh, Sion movement that eventually became the Zionist movement, Merkaz um, Ruchani, that became merged to Mizrahi. It was the, it was the religious division. We talked about Rokuk. We've been tracing its developments. Now where we find it in the last half century, um, we know that Rav Kook is considered the basic uh, teacher, Rav, guiding light, guiding force. His son was a political, uh, charismatic influence, certainly a role model on, on a lot of levels. Not the Torah, didn't have the Torah stature of his father. Um, the idea, though, was very much, and the, the best way of describing it, it is clearly a messianic movement. Exceptions to the rule, there are people who don't identify with this, but overwhelmingly what we find, and we'll see, I'll elaborate and, and demonstrate this, that the idea is to, in a very politicized, grassroots kind of a way, we are going to, by settling land, by campaigning, by, um, by reinstituting different religious practices, we're going to bring Mashiach by hook or by crook, by force. Uh, it's going to sound like this. I'll, I'll, I'll even, we've been tracing this theme through Jewish history. It's a dominant thing, too. With all of our genuine, well-intentioned zeal to have Mashiach come, sometimes we overstep our boundaries. You remember the expression in Hebrew? The, the, the mistake of the, of the various generations to be dolchek esakates, to, as it were, try to force Hashem's hand. Bar Kochva is the best example of it. He said, I don't need you. I'll do it myself. Um, and, but we've had it ever since. The people who take a too strong hand are the, the delicate balancing act that we're meant to be doing is I wait for him, I wait for him every, every day, I wait in anticipation, but Hashem is in charge of the world. For me to, for me to do anything that's, that's overly aggressive is, is insinuating, I mean, it certainly seems to be in the, in, the, in the spirit, even though we've talked about the three O's before, one of the, one of the underlying ideas of the three O's is that a Kaddish Baruch Hu runs the world. If he sees... Am Yisrael, in Eretz Yisrael, behaving themselves, doing what we're meant to do, and that's not through political activism. Doing what we're supposed to be doing is spelled out quite unambiguously in the Torah itself, learning Torah, keeping mitzvos. If we do that, HaKadosh Baruch Hu then brings Mashiach. It's a very straightforward formula, only it's a little bit hard and unglamorous, so many people prefer the grassroots political activism approach. You're referring to something that happened a few years ago where they went to seek out the lost tribes, yeah? We found like a, a map from the Nazis uh, mm -hmm. regarding a certain river. Okay. May have been the Sambachion, we want to yeah, say, yeah, fine, yeah, yeah. fine no, okay. That's. That's you'll find you'll find that kind of thing. Those kinds of stories abound in the Mizrahi world, where when you once you move, and because people picture on the left to right spectrum, when you when you move to the right, into the Haredi world, less discussion on like the here and now results oriented level, more uh, more keep learning Torah, because if we're not worthy of Mashiach coming, there's not much to talk about when he does come. Exactly. So they were like going to they were they were preparing for like. Uh, Fine. So that's you're going to find many examples, and I'm going to cite them now too. Let me let me let me let me. Let me. Yeah. Famous. By the name of. So famous that you. Okay, fine. So he passed away, and so the whole project fell aside. And they said, "Oh, this is a sign." 
okay, it could be a sign, but again, you don't hear Gedolim talking about this. Famous rabbis notwithstanding, you don't hear Gedolim talking about the importance of any of these projects. They say, sit and learn Torah. Yeah, because um, that's what's going to bring Mashiach, not going to the ten tribes, right? Many would see the, the newly reconquered lands, the conquest of the Six-Day War, as a sign from a Kaddish Baruch Hu, more so than finding the return, returning the lost ten tribes, the return of, of biblical lands to the Jewish people, uh, and of course, central to everything, reuniting the holy capital of Yerushalayim with the old city, bring that back into the hands of the Jewish people, even though we didn't get the Temple Mount. I'm going to talk about the Temple Mount at the end of this. We're going to get at the end, not far from now, not long from now, we're going to talk about the Mashiach and talk about the various ambiguities. That The, the answer to your question is ambiguous. At what the actual sequence of the Kaula will be is subject to much discussion, and we don't have a clear picture. And we'll get to that. So let's not let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let me let me try to maintain a keep a straight thought here uh, as as we go through. Again, we're going back to the re, the re, the newly reconquered um, biblical territories: Yehuda v'Shomron, Yerushalayim, Yerikodesh, especially the settler movement, which was spearheaded by Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook, called the Gush Emunim. Together with other names, if I throw out names like Rav Chaim Drukman, Rav Chanan Porat, Rav Shlomo Avener, does that mean anything to anybody? Okay, they're, they're, um, they're big names in this world, in the Mizrahi world, not necessarily outside of the world. They're, they're each one each one cutting a different figure. I mean, I, I personally, I know Rav Shlomo Avener is a big time. He was a disciple of Rav Tzvi Yehudi, comes from France originally. What's that? Okay, fine. Uh, so this Rosh Shlomo Avner is a, a huge Talmud Chacham who writes, um, writes a lot in Halacha and uh, very, from what I've learned, uh, I mean, it's certainly relative to his world, but uh, from the classic sources. And he is, his campaign is that everybody should be um, very, very knowledgeable about Halacha and practicing Halacha. He writes practical books, for example, for soldiers. I recommended his books for, um, to Ilan, uh, because if you're going to be a soldier, there's a lot to know. Shabbos in the army. Say it again. I don't know his view on Hetemachira. I speculate. I wouldn't be surprised if he did not support the Hetemachira. Did not. He. he I, I, I don't know. Uh, again, I'm speaking in ignorance on, about his opinion on this particular subject. But there are the many big names in halacha in the Mizrahi world are not in favor of the Hetemachira, and they have some who are. It, it, it's it's not it's not you know it's not uh, monolithic but um, yeah um, the initial idea with the conquering of the lands and remember Israel inherited some one million Arab residents in these lands and it's only grown apace as the demographics the Arabs have lots of babies so the demographic explosion in the West Bank and the Yehuda B'Shomron uh, in the Arab sector is is is, is formidable is is, is 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 significant but the idea was we're going to go and send groups to reestablish Jewish settlement, Jewish life in historically Jewish areas, um, ideally with government support, and depending on who is in power from the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and on until the present, um, they would sometimes receive government support, but that didn't stop them. If they didn't receive government support, one often uh, learned about settler outposts, illegal outposts, sometimes that the government destroyed, like they destroyed, they occasionally destroy illegal Arab 
uh, squatters. Um, the idea being that there's all it's it's the Wild West Bank where they li literally have tracts of land unclaimed, and if you establish in halacha we call it a chazaka. If you simply go out and build it, and the next day you're there, you're living there. Well, maybe that'll eventually become a fact on the ground, and eventually you'll be able to say that's a Jewish place. You remember the Zionist movement did such a thing uh, famously with the, the, the tower, the tower, and um, the tower and wall, the Migdal Bahoma uh, operation in the 1930s, when the British severely limited the Jewish ability to take new land. They would go overnight, very deviously and cleverly. They would go in the middle of the night, put up a stock. It was a stockaded tower. Uh, it was called stockaded tower, home of the Migdal, um, where they literally had a, a wall that they knew how to build overnight and a tower, and then a, a, they sent a few people there, and what do you know, presto, new community. And the British the next morning didn't evacuate it, so then it became a Jewish community, de facto. And so the settler movement got wise, and they do much the same. Sometimes legally, sometimes illegal. It's, it's, it's utter, isn't this attractive? I mean, anybody who's got a, a sense of adventure, a feeling that you're, you're coming back to the land, you yourself, by setting up such a community, are actually helping to hasten the Messianic era. And, and, and a feel you're really doing something, sitting in the corner of the base mattress, breaking your teeth on a toast post, feels much less glamorous in comparison, no? This feels like you're really doing something, and I, I mean, I, I um, have, uh, clients in my therapy practice who um, very fine people. I like them very much, but very much from this world. And the man um, commented. He he actually serves on security in the uh, in in the West Bank, and he said it's not so good. But yeah, he wears a keep on his head most of the time. And he feels he should because he be a role model for his children. He wants them to be religious, but he's not really practicing so much. He doesn't dive in three times a day. He doesn't really learn much. But he feels when he's out there, and he described one particular, I remember this scenario where he was defending Jews from Arab terrorists who infiltrated, he felt he was doing the Avodah Hashem necessary for our age. You can see how people can get, and he's the most sincere person, you can see how somebody can get swept up and feel that this is the religious calling. This is new orthodoxy in his mind. Okay, so he's, he's a figure in this world, certainly, He's not the only model. There are very religious people. I described Rav Avner two minutes ago too. But it's possible within this movement to see such a such a reality that somebody is utterly religious and not keeping mitzvot. At least in his mind, he's utterly religious. Um, <clears throat> what's the underlying idea? And the wet right wing, the Arabs hate us. We're not going to change that. Arab culture respects strength. They eventually back down if you're strong, if you show them that nothing's going to change you. If we, therefore, represent that very strong hand, we're here, we're here to stay, eventually they'll come to accept us. Not happily, certainly begrudgingly, but they'll get used to the idea of Jews being here. That's the, in a, in a, in a nutshell, that's the idea of the right wing. And they say that if you make peace settlements, if you negotiate, you give an inch, they'll take a mile. Today, the West Bank, tomorrow, Haifa, Tel Aviv, and the rest. And, um, and, and, and that the, the left wing is not really making any peace. They're actually inviting war by making concessions because the Arabs interpret it as a weakness. That's, that's, from this perspective, they go out again with a religious zeal to, to, uh, to, to, to conquer the lands, to settle the land, and so on. That, that's, that's, that's the idea. Often it's vigilant. Um, they, as living in these fraught areas, confront hostile, violent uh, Arab 
uh, attacks on a regular basis. They've endured terrible tragedies, uh, and murders, and family members, whole families sometimes um, wiped out. Um, the Arabs, in theory, it's true, they do respect force, but they also don't perceive the settler movement as having long-staying power. They see the tremendous division within Israeli ranks, and they feel that if they can wear down the settler movement, they can destroy it. And they may be onto something, they certainly break up, break up their morale, uh, and, and the history that the movement have had in the West Bank is, is, is as I said, uh, it's a t tragic history, um, extremely sad, heartbreaking. Um, they also, together with all of their hard work and their zeal and their self-sacrifice, they have generally, for the last half a century, faced overwhelming international condemnation. The world sees them as religious freaks, as nuts. They don't understand the, the, their ideology. Um, for their own, in their own, to their own discredit, they don't do a good PR job. Um, some of their members are guilty of, um, of acts of what's called terrorism, whatever you want to call it. These are just political words, but um, they'll go over and, and um, there's a movement, let's say more recently, called the Price Tag Movement. Unclear who's generating it, but it would be consistent within, the, the, let's say, the hothead right-wing um, contingent in the Mizrahi world that some of them would just say, we don't care, we're so frustrated, we're so angry, we're going to get the Arabs. And the Arabs will learn by our force to eventually accept us. So that will only generate further condemnation in the, not just the international community, but in the mainstream Israeli community too. They see, um, sadly, one of the reasons why secular Israelis are so alienated from their roots, from Torah, is there are two models of what it is to be a religious Jew is either you're one of these settler freaks, these religious messianic uh, uh, terrorists, as it's been stereotyped, or you're one of the Haredi leeches, who is uh, sim simply uh, not contributing to society, and worse, not serving in the army, not paying taxes by some accounts, and, and, and like that. So those are the two models that they passionately reject. The, um, One thing I do say for them, um, I, I often say this when I'm guiding Chevron, which maybe we'll do in a few weeks, if uh, at the time it permits, I haven't looked into it, I haven't studied the calendar, but I don't think it takes much planning. Just hop on a bus and go. Anyway, um, clearly I don't endorse, and I don't think you can only endorse um, their, the ideology, but what you see in the ideology is immense, mysterious nefesh, self-sacrifice, and commitment to the cause. Can you imagine if we took that kind of 100% life on the line kind of dedication and applied it to what the Godlings say we're supposed to be doing, learning Torah, living in Eretz Israel, keeping the mitzvot and so on, Lechora, the Jews would bring Mashiach. We had, if we took that kind of intensity, that kind of devotion and applied it where it needs to be applied. Uh, let me describe a few strands within this movement. Um, the name Rabbi Meir Kahana means anything to anybody? He plays a role here and he represents a movement so I'm going to describe him uh, he's the author of a book and the idea, the ideology, Hara'ayon HaYehudi, the Jewish idea. Um, he, he founded a movement, the Kach movement as it's called, uh, which disagreed, which broke from the standard Gushemunim. Gushemunim was seen as more moderate within the Mizrahi world, but, but the Kach was more radical. Uh, Kach disagreed, his, and he articulates it, and it's intelligent. And many are persuaded by it because he makes, he makes reasoned arguments. 
Um, some many call it extreme, and I've got my own criticisms of it. But remember, extreme is anywhere to the right or left from where you're sitting. It's another subjective one of those labels you put on people. What makes it extreme per se? Um, his emphasis was he felt there will never be reconcil reconciliation between Jews and Arabs. Therefore, what you must do is get rid of them. That's and that's the most humane approach for them and for us. Simply transfer them. Uh, you remember that once upon a time transfer wasn't so far out. I mentioned it when we talked about the War of Independence, Muhammad Tashah. That's what they did, and some moderate names, Yigal Alon, um, Yitzhak Rabin, were involved in the mass transfer of Arab populations in the Hula Valley. And then I commented that the Hula Valley is probably the most peaceable, quiet corner of Eretz Israel ever since the inception of the states, because the Jews and the Arabs are not on top of each other. So, and that's what the separation fence that's being built since 2002 um, seems to have indicated that generally where the Arabs can't get through and the Arabs are living among Arabs and Jews are living on Jews, there have been considerably fewer terrorist incursions. So if you could just separate the people, uh, he argued, you might have peace. Um, he argued that Arabs will never accept Israel, get used to it. There's no peace plan. You'll make peace, you'll trade over the idea that, uh, you know, gun to head. Wallet for peace. You give me your wallet, I'll give you peace. But the next day, they can come right back and put the gun to the head again. So what have you traded when you've traded land for peace? Uh, we have, we have a, what's called a cold peace with Egypt that who knows what regime will come, chas uh, v'shalom, in, in any future times. They could easily just tear up the piece of paper uh, that the peace treaty was made on and go to war with Israel. What's stopping them? They're not, they're not, um, they don't feel bound to the agreements made by a previous, re previous regime. And since anti-Israel sentiment is something that runs extremely deep in the modern Arab world, um, what's to prevent them from doing this? Um, therefore, he said, the only practical existential option Israel has is to forcibly remove Arabs who don't accept its legitimacy. You can ask them. He said, he, said, he said, you can go around and see. Any Arab who's willing to live within Israel and is a fine, upstanding citizen, fine. The overwhelming majority, he realized, would not be that, but okay. Um, his ideas are not just kah. One hears variations in the same idea. Victor Lieberman is the Russian party. Um, if he gets into, the, it gets into the coalition right now, it's being debated. But Lieberman um, also has a whole long-term settlement vision, including... I mean, he's very specific too. Do you know Israel demographics, the geography today? It, there is a cluster of Israeli Arabs, meaning Arabs with Israeli citizenship, which usually means they had they were in Israel from before the Six Day War in a region roughly called Um Al Fahum, which is just uh, just n uh, northwest of the West Bank area, right off of the Route Six on the way a little south of Megiddo. It's a big concentration of Arab towns, not just Um Al Fahum, but several others as well who are ideologically, even though they're Israeli citizens, they're generally opposed to the existence of the state of Israel. And he finds them, he calls them, Lieberman calls them a cancer in the midst of Israel, and said he drew a different map of final status if there's going to be a Palestinian state. He said, include the map, have them include all these hostile Israeli Arabs and get them out of Israel. See, demographics are a problem in Israel anyway. If you're a democratic society, uh, and the Arabs are having lots of babies and the Jews are not, eventually they'll, they'll outnumber the Jews, and then what kind of a society will you have? So he, he takes a similar Kahanist kind of a, a, a stance in saying, you know, separate the Jews. If you study the map of Israel, you see more or less it's like this. Jews, Arabs, Jews, Arabs overlapping. And um, a mess, 
and and one and, and more than a mess, one that's that's that endangers both populations, mainly the Jews. Um, initially, a little bit about his life, um, he was the founder of what's called the Jewish Defense League, very right-wing organization. Some branded a terrorist organization till today, could be, don't know. In fact, he and others would actually be convicted of acts of domestic terrorism in the 60s and 70s before he made Aliyah. Uh, he makes Aliyah in 1971. Um, he actually became a member of the Knesset in 1984. He was elected with the Kach party. Uh, he and one other member, it was at the time when you could still have two, I think the minimum number of representatives you could have in the Knesset were two members today, they've upped it to four, so it would never pass today. Um, that's true, but it, did, it, 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 yeah, it doesn't happen today. Um, they were branded as racist, and they actually drafted as law. The Knesset officially in 1988 banned Kach as a racist party, and therefore it was not allowed to be re-elected, uh, and he, was, he left the Knesset. Um, in the most recent elections, his spiritual, uh, his ideological heirs um, joined forces with Elid Ishai, who had separated from Shas, and they almost made it. They were very close to the minimal threshold, but all the votes were thrown away, and they uh, did not make it to the Knesset. They almost got four, four uh, seats, but they didn't quite manage um, he was very strong. He warned American Jews. He felt America, American Jews were, were deluded, that they, were they thought they were living in a Gan Eden when, in fact, uh, it was just a matter of time until the American Jewish community would implode and, 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 and the forces of anti-Semitism in America would, would emerge. And so he said, you better immigrate to Israel before it's too late. He was among the fear-mongering right wing. Netanyahu used fear-mongering very effectively to get re-elected, to get 30 seats in the last Knesset. Um, it doesn't take much. It's scary these days to be in this part of the world. And so all you have to do is imagine a number of doomsday scenarios, scare your population into submission, and they'll vote for you. Um, the right wing, the Republicans do it in America too. Similar tactics, very effective politically if you want to get votes. So um, he certainly did that. I think he believed it. I mean, I'm describing it in cynical terms. I think it is cynical. But I think he also believed it. Um, in any case, uh, he in 1990 was giving a lecture in America on this, exactly this topic, make Aliyah before it's too late, when he was assassinated by an Arab. Um, interestingly, the same Arab who assassinated Kahana was, late, was three years later involved in the bombing of the World Trade Center. You, know, you remember 1993, the World Center, I mean, it was a minor bombing. They got a garage, a little minor damage, uh, they would do more uh, eight years later to the World Trade Center. Um, so Kahana preached a certain, um, people said he preached a violent ideology and he was downed by violence. He was assassinated. I don't know if that's fair, but he was definitely, his, his tactics were uncompromising. And he said he, certainly his followers carry pistols wherever they go and they feel that everybody else, it's a kind of ideology that assumes that everybody else in the world is utterly naive. Only if you're them do you really understand the truth of the world. And if only they'd wake up. I remember getting a ride with a, uh, somebody who identified with Kach uh, on the way to Efrat when I lived in Efrat. And he said, Rabbi Riskin, the rabbi of Efrat, and all the Jews in Efrat, they're too moderate. Even though they're, they're living in the West Bank and so on. But he said, nah, they fall for all the American moderation. He said, they don't really get it. It's a very... Um, and patronizing, condescending kind of a view. Only we understand the truth. And therefore, and on that level, it's problematic because they don't listen to authorities. There's no Gadol who endorsed Kahana. 
he was his own man. Uh, by the way, the, there's the yeshiva. Uh, remember where we did um, Tashlich on Rosh Hashanah? Can you picture the walk? Just there. We passed it. And it's a, it's a Kahana. And, and it's his descendants. Or ideolo- ideological descendants have, have one of their bases right there. Um, so the idea persists in the world. Um, again, very, very self-righteous, very, very justified. There are some intriguing ideas they're onto. They're not endorsed by any gadol. Um, there was no charismatic leader who ever replaced him. They have several names, famous names, but um, this, you see the slogan painted around bus stops and elsewhere, Kahani, Kahanat Sadak. Often after terrorist attacks, people in frustration, I mean, living in Israel is, it's intense. You know, this morning there was an attack, two, two bus stops up here? Attempted attack. Attempted attack. It was an attack. It was an attempted stabbing. They didn't succeed this time around, but just you know, one stop, two stops, three stops up is given a mitar. Um, another tactic stabbing. You know, uh, the 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 du jour mode of terrorist attacks these days is isolated individuals acting on their own go out and start stabbing people at a at a at a train stop. I bet you half the money in front of the organization is just doing it in their name. Yeah, well, I mean, the the one the the one by French Hill a few weeks ago that killed the young man and injured the woman. He was miffed. He couldn't. He he had to sit. He, the way he described it, he was sitting at one of these um, uh, border crossings with his parents, and he got seething angry that the that the uh, at the at the persecution, at the discrimination, that they had to sit there in traffic. And while he was sitting there, he started stewing in his anger and said, "I'm going to go kill some Jews." And that's what he did. He waited, lurked around, and he found a good good uh, opportunity, and he killed a Jew. Um, in any case. Um, You'll, in response to that, often people in their frustration will go and write these slogans, look, Kahane was right all along, come on you naive, all the rest of you on the naive uh, Israeli political spectrum wake up and, real, and, and, and realize that Kahane was the prophet of truth. Um, the Gdolim never said that. Um, followers of this ideology include um, Dr. Baruch Goldstein, Goldstein, who was a resident of Kiryat Arba, um, and in 1994, Whatever happened, he went nuts, according to some people, or it was a calculated move. Either way, he entered the Maris Machpelah, and he murdered 29 Palestinian, um, Palestinians who were in the middle of prayer, uh, took a gun, and, and people said he went crazy because he was a doctor and had, 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 um, had given care and solace to so many victims, especially in Hebron, so many families, beautiful families, victims of Arab terrorism that he snapped and went on the rampage. Um, he was lynched after that, also illegal. I mean, no, 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 he was lynched. No, I don't know, no, but he lived before he was lynched. They, didn't, uh, they lynched him immediately. I mean, he managed to kill 29 people before they got him and lynched oh, him and killed him. So at the moment, he was killed. Yes, he, he got that part. Lynch, lynch is like after the fact. He is, by some on, the, on this right wing, he is considered a hero. People make pilgrimage to his, to his grave. Um, that's problematic. The ways of Torah, the ways of, of pleasantness. Now it's true the Torah does say there's such a thing as a Melchemist Mitzvah. There are times we have to pick up arms and fight. Um, again, for such things though, we need guidance. We don't need um, isolated individuals, even if they're knowledgeable in Torah, to assert that this is what's needed. You really need the guidance of big names in Torah. And they're not, they're not advocating any such thing. Certainly not going and, and murdering Palestinians. Which are going to nest, which are, will inevitably have terrible ramifications for Klal Yisrael, uh, not to mention the Chil Hashem and all the other uh, negative aspects. <clears throat> now, uh, 
if we're painting a picture and it's mosaic as with as everything, I, I have to mention that there is a, a, a faction within the national religious world in, in, in Israel that's actually left wing. It's a small group. It's a minority. It's represented. It was represented. Rav Aaron Lichtenstein just passed away a week or two ago, uh, but he and his and, and his and his co-rosh yeshiva of Yehuda Amital in the Gush in Yeshivat uh, Har Sion were um, proponents of, of the idea of um, settling the land, maybe, but that it's more important. And they're living in the Gush, which is in the West Bank, but they felt as a higher value the Torah places pikuach nefesh. And that if you could trade land, and that could somehow lead to a lasting peace, they were in favor of such of such of such an effort. They actually um, almost made it to the Knesset themselves. Didn't pass the threshold in, in the 1980s uh, with this ideology. Um, others, there's a, there's a Rabbi Melchior who was a representative in the Knesset for many years. I think on the Labor Party list who espoused this, but they're the overwhelming exception to the rule. Most of the constituency, most of the of the Mizrahi reject their teachings and say no, no. With the Arabs, you have to have a strong line. Um, I mentioned before you you brought Daniel as an example. Um, you know, going and finding the lost tribes. One finds in this if it's a messianic movement, well then let's restore old institutions that signify the new third commonwealth. So, given this, let's let's reconsider. Um, where is the Sanhedrin? How come, if the Jews are back in their holy land, it doesn't exist right now? Um, you remember the story. I'm going to pick up one of the one of the many um, strands of history that we've examined and then sort of paused. Remember the whole discussion of smicha, which is related to the reestablishment of the Sanhedrin and the reappointment of the Nasi, the institution of the figurehead, the Nasi. Do you remember, for example, we stood in Sfas, we stood by his kever of Yaakov Beirav, who tried in, um, from 1537, he tried to re uh, based on a, on a Rambam, tried to um, restart Smicha. It was a failed project, it never endured. Um, there have been other attempts through history to start Smicha again. We know, for example, in the, 19, in the 1830s, Rabbi Yisrael of Shklov, who we met, one of the students of the Vilna Gaon, um, he considered renewing the Sanhedrin. So he, this is, 1830s is before there's the Yeshua Chadash, formally, or maybe just at the very beginning, the rumblings of Yeshua Chadash. So there's no such thing as Datilumi or modern Orthodox or anything in the 1830s. And anyway, he's a student of the Vilna Gon. He's coming from a halachic perspective. And he considered maybe if Jews are now in larger numbers starting to return to the Holy Land, maybe we too should renew the Sanhedrin. Um, he abandoned the project. It wasn't, it wasn't relevant. Uh, other attempts, 1901, there was an attempt to restart the Sanhedrin. Uh, Rav Aaron Mendel and Cohen um, suggested it, and also because of the complexity of the time, it was just shelved. Similarly, again, 1940, Rav Tzvi uh, attempted to start one in um, 1941. This is a more familiar name, Rav Yehuda Leib Maimun of the Mizrahi political movement. In fact, he was the first minister of religious affairs in the first Knesset. Uh, and he's in 1949. You have the new state. He said, "Let's have a new, the new Sanhedrin." Here now, they um, here he received formal opposition because he's now institutionalizing on, on mitam hamedina, meaning from the perspective of the state, they're going to have a Sanhedrin. And you remember the part of what the Zionist movement attempted was to put all religious life under their thumb. Have a chief rabbinate, have kashrus, have uh, burial society, burial kedisha organizations that's specifically answerable to a secular state. 
So when he tried, as the first um, head of the religious ministry, um, the religious affairs, to start a Sanhedrin, he got formal opposition, um, actually from the Israeli chief rabbinate. The chief rabbis were, were opposed. The briskerah of the Chazonish, many opposed the project. Um, and eventually it faded. The whole initiative never went anywhere. Um, the Chazonish spoke out at the time. He said, he quotes the Radbaz, you remember from the 16th century, he says, no individual is fit to renew the Sanhedrin. Any discussion of the topic in what he calls this Dor Yosom, this um, orphaned generation, as our generation he felt is and was and is, he says is, is ludicrous. All of that will happen. It'll, full, it'll be an organic, natural development. Eliyahu Navi is going to come. Mashiach is going to come. We'll get to this when we talk about the end of days. But the Sanhedrin naturally will emerge. It doesn't have to be a politicized, certainly not a Zionist-oriented, um, politicized movement. It'll come about when Am Yisrael is ready. In the meantime, our job is to get ready. And the only way we can do that adequately is by learning Torah. And the only way, uh, yeah, but the, the whole Sanhedrin part, in, in, in the order of how it, it happened, it's supposed to happen before Mashiach comes like, for example, like Mashiach, like, okay, let's say Mashiach came right now, right? In this part, there's all the same, but like, you know, in this kind of Eretz Yisrael, it wouldn't be fit for, you know, the Jewish nation. This Eretz Yisrael, the one that... The, the one, one that exists right now, you're saying it's not fit for the heir of the Mashiach? Exactly. That's what I just said, and therefore, therefore, the best thing we can do if we want to take initiative is to ready ourselves, is to learn Torah. Well... It still won't stop the rest of the call itself. But, but we see, see what what should you do? And the answer is I don't know. The, the, the answer is you don't know either. And that's why in this area, arguably more than any, you really need das Torah. You need the most knowledgeable Torah luminaries of any given generation to be able to weigh in and say this is, given their knowledge, the yeah, the, the most appropriate thing. Let me let me let me let me let me continue because it's, it's very relevant. The next step, two thousand and four. A group in Tiveria, rabbis, mostly Mizrahi rabbis, very much part of this ideology, Messianic, um, declared itself a renewed Sanhedrin. They claimed that Rav Moshe Halberstam of the Eidah Haredes, he died in 2006, two years later, but that he was the first to receive smicha. They claimed that they had the endorsement of such leading rabbis as Rav Yosef Shalom Eliyashev, Rav Eliyashev, Rav Zalman Nechemia Goldberg, Rav Avadi Yosef, um, interestingly, none of those leading rabbinic names commented on the Sanhedrin. I mean, the Sanhedrin claimed their uh, um, so, so their endorsement. The Gedolim, I, it's not clear exactly what yeah, was what went on. But usually, one finds this. Usually, silence tells you everything. Shtika koda dami. Shtika means, in this case, not koda. It's not like they're acknowledging that it's true. Shtika is you're not worthy of comment. And in fact, the editorial once they came out, the editorial in the Yated Ne'eman, in the voice piece of the Degelatayra of the Litvish uh, Yeshivish world, said that this fringe group they're not worthy of comment. Right. So that's the point. Don't, don't, if you ignore them. Uh, that's the most, that's the greatest kind of condemnation. You remember that's the Vilnagon's, that was the Vilnagon's answer to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the original uh, Balatanya, was just say, I'm not meeting with you. You're nobody. You don't count. And Rabbi uh, Steintars was the leader. 
Oh, oh, not their leader. He was one of their members. No, I don't think, I don't know if he was the chief. I, I, their members include less known figures, including Rabbi Steinsaltz, um, but also Rabbi Yisrael Ariel, who's the founder of the Temple Institute, Machon Mikdash, uh, Rabbi Dov Levanoni, Rabbi Dov Merstein. I mean, I say, listen, I guess everybody relative to their circles. In their circles, maybe they're considered big names. But I, in the, in the scheme of Klal Yisrael, certainly in the scheme of the consensus of the Gedolim, they don't register. I mean, their, their names are not, not really on the radar. And really, to their credit, they call themselves, very modestly, placeholders waiting for more worthy candidates to join. They're just sitting there in the meantime. But of course, I guess a response on the part of the, uh, the, 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 more, the, the higher level rabbinic establishment, um, why don't you wait for the big names to initiate the project? Who do you think you are by initiating this in the first place? Um, related, related, and certainly overlapping in many of these same personalities are involved, you have a movement called the Temple Mount Faithful, um, who established, was established in 1967. The goal, of course, now that the Temple Mount is back in Jewish hands, and you remember, we talked about this recently, right after the Six-Day War, um, there was a lot of movement and dynamism, and Shlomo um, went up and blew the shofar, and it led, led many visits of Jews in those initial weeks. And then, 19, and then in August of 1967, off limits, nobody's allowed the Temple Mount. The government reinforced, reinforced that rabbinic censure. Um, say it again? Okay, that's certainly it's an issue we've been debating here. Right? It's Jewish, certainly, insofar as people who descend from Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov are, are, are represented in the Knesset. But in terms of being traditionally Jewish, in many ways, we've, we've made that argument elaborately that it's not very Jewish. Here, for example, the defense minister, Moshe Dayan, gave the keys to the Temple Mount to the Muslim walk, uh, quite consciously doing this. And the Temple, the, the, the temple Faithful, the, the, the movement called the uh, Temple Mount Faithful, um, were absolutely mortified and ideologically have been fighting that ever since. Their goal, we're going to yesterday rebuild the base of Mikdash as far as they're concerned. Uh, they're, they're ready to get started any, any minute as soon as they get an okay, and even if they can do it, even if it means doing it illegally. Um, they want to reinstitute Korbanos even before there's a base of Mikdash, which there's precedent for, that's another shear. It's a great topic. If you're interested, we can develop that one. Uh, what's that? That, that's right. They were the ones offering the Korban Pesach this year. They did it in the, in the German colony for some reason. I guess, uh, yeah, okay. Um, now, they split. They had their own political infighting. Uh, the more religious strand um, you know, went one way. There was a more political, sometimes secular-oriented member. They want the Temple Mount for secular reason. Go figure. They split in 1987. In 1990, a few key dates in, the, in their history, they announced that they were laying a cornerstone for the Third Temple on the Temple Mount. And that, of course, guess, guess how the Arabs reacted to that one, that announcement. That triggered a bunch of Arab riots. 17 Arabs left, left, left for dead. Um, usually, not just this last year, but usually before the Chagim, they asked for permission to pray on the Temple Mount. Um, they're allowed, the Begadatz technically allows them to enter. They're not allowed to pray. And they, the, the response is, for security reasons. Do you know that, I mean, this is ironic, and I'm going to sound like a right-winger, you know, based on my presentation here now. I'm not right-wing, and, and I don't identify with these people's goals. But I do agree with them. There is an irony. If you were to go to the Temple Mount, which I understand is to be completely us, so please don't. 
But if you were to go to the Temple Mount today, you'd be greeted as, let's say, you walked in through the Mugrabi Gate, Barclays Gate, on the top of the south area, you would see a sign, and that sign has a bunch of rules. It says you're entering a holy area, and we ask you to expect it to respect the, the decorum, the, with, with religious decorum, and they ask for modest dress, and they ask, among other things, as a Muslim religious area, that any other religion, gee, who could that be? Uh, any other religion, um, it's by law, on the Temple Mount, legislated in the Knesset, um, you are, it's forbidden to pray, it's forbidden to um, Saint Tehillim, say, to read from the Book of Psalms, and, and other religious expressions, because it's a Muslim, Christians too, but they're more concerned about the Jews. Uh, the Muslims object to Jews doing any religious worship in this Muslim religious site. Um, if you hear it, how dripping in sarcasm, you know, or how, 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 how ironic this is in the place that's the holiest place for the Jewish people, Midoridoros, um, at best the third holiest place to Islam, and that's it's illegal for Jews. What comes out since the fall of the Iron Curtain in the, in the, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, and with maybe a couple exceptions, more or less today, the Jews live in a newly religiously tolerant world, relatively free world, in which um, you can now, in the former Soviet Union, as a Jew, pray, keep kosher, say Tehillim. It comes out then that the only place in the world, or one of the only places in the world, where a Jew is by law forbidden from praying, comes out to be the holiest place in the world. Aren't you to the Jews? Jews are supposed to go up there anyways. Which is something we've talked about here in depth. Correct. I just, I, I always take a moment to consider ironies of the times we're living in. I figure this is all part of the Chevle Mashiach, the, the labor pains of the Messianic era, and maybe even a nod and a wink with the Kaddish Baruch sense of humor uh, in, this, in this regard, how, you know, the only place in the world you can't daven as a Jew is have to be the holiest place in the world to the Jews. In any case, they, they certainly make every attempt to go up there. Um, you hear, you read about them secretly, they'll go up on a, on a, because occasionally Jews, there are ways of getting up the Temple Mount, and they go in the southern area, and sometimes they overstep their bounds, they shouldn't be up there. Uh, we've talked about such things. They'll go up, dressed like an ordinary tourist group, and then suddenly, like within a, before anybody can even notice what's going on. They're praying. No, like they'll, I was gonna say a different scenario. Um, they will, a Masada Kedusha will quickly perform a marriage, and they'll get married there. Done, before anybody can notice, before they can get arrested. Wow. <laughs> right. Right. They do this kind of stuff all the time. They all, I mean, I, there's a story, there's a story, um, the first Bris Miller, right after, uh, in the early, uh, when was it, when was it, when was it, I think it was in the early 70s, in Hebron, in the Maris Machpelah. Also illegal, can't do it, it's going to offend their sensibilities, uh, it's going to offend the Muslims, but they quickly, the mole quickly pulled out the knife, quick, hopefully not too quick, and, uh, and, the, and the Mila was performed. And, uh, and like that, they, they do these things. They're stunts, but you have to realize they're ideologically motivated. That's what these people are. They feel they're being Mashiach by doing this. Uh, it's, it's, as we've said before also, it's terribly exciting. You can then say, I was at the first Bris Mila, the Marspach Pela, the Jewish people in the modern era. Mashiach is around the corner kind of a feeling. It feels more tangible, as we said, than learning a rasp in the corner of the base Medrash. Um, yeah, they do a lot. He's like, no, I'm Jewish. They're like, that's why. In <laughs> recent years, the group, the Temple Mount Faithful, have developed ties <laughs> with uh, 
with um, in, um, fundamentalist Christians from the United States. Oh, they get a lot of money from them. That's where the Temple Institute also gets a lot of money from, from evangelicals and others. Okay. Uh, they make large contributions. They have, they have um, I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing to make, to, to call these people our friends and to make to forge ties with them. They have a different agenda. They, they, they believe that this is gonna lead to Yashka's second coming. It's not exactly what, um, what, what we have in mind. The, um, I did mention recently when we talked about the Six Day War, I mentioned, um, yes, I did mention it. Okay, so going up to Temple Mount, something we, we've talked about. It's also not something that you hear the Gedolim ever mentioned as an imperative, quite the contrary. Going up there is extremely fraught. Usur, a uh, person going up into the wrong part of the Temple Mount, could be Chayef Karis. The um, Temple Institute, also very related to the, all the previous. Uh, previous um, areas we've been discussing. The Temple Institute wants to rebuild the base of Mikdash. Um, they're not just a museum. Who is there? We, we, we were all there together earlier this year. You we, we were all with on, on the tour, right? So their goal is not just a museum. They want those, those, those models that they built to be used one day soon. Um, they want to study the detail of every every bit of halach, all the, all the Gemara, all the Shas and the Boskim on the subjects. They've created over 90 clay Kodesh, holy vessels. Uh, they've, they've, re they've recreated the Big Day Kahuna. Um, you, you know that we talked about this when we visited there. Many, most of these kalim are subject to machlokas. So when they recreate these things, they simply have to paskin and take side, but who's to say that what they're doing is correct? Meaning it's a guest. That is the other issue. Is generally it's us to make the kalim. They would argue we're not making it stam to have it for ourselves. We're making it for the base of Mikdash, and that's different. Um, they almost found two candidates to be paradumas, uh, one in 1997 and one in 2002. I'm sure they're very eagerly, very the eagerly awaiting what's happening in Lakewood. That's yeah, exactly what we're talking about. Just yeah, now, this year, yeah, 2015, in Lakewood, we're waiting to see if that one could be. Year. It seems to be a candidate. It could it's be. Third year. Okay, okay. The, the, the ones, the, the, those other candidates in 1997 and 2002 were both found to be puzzle. Not hard to be. Not hard to puzzle a, a paraduma. Um, they claim to rely on Rambam's view that a Jew, any Jew, can rebuild the base of Mikdash on their own initiative, and that's what they're trying to do. Um, we know that, um, first of all, many, many, most Rishonim don't agree with the Rambam, that the, the base of Mikdash is not going to be built by human agency. It's going to be what I call prefab coming down from the Shemaim miraculously. But even the Rambam, the Tosos Yantif, your ancestor, um, in the 17th century, he said that the Rambam also subscribes to the view that only Mashiach himself can rebuild it. You have to relearn the Rambam there. So it's even a machlokus over what Rambam it really held. Um, they also go against the Xera, against entering the Temple Mount. Their rabbis go up there as well. They go weekday mornings, the only time police allow Jews to enter in the weekday morning. And um, a comment on the Temple Mount area itself. Um, after the Six-Day War, it will be the most sensitive area, certainly in Eretz Israel and arguably in the entire world. It's the largest, I think the, the tour guides like superlatives, they, they say it's the largest religious platform area in the world, still functioning. Um, in 1969, it'll be therefore a hotbed of all kinds of activities, including it'll track, it, it attracts crazies like moths to the light. Uh, in 1969, an Australian fundamentalist Christian went up to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, that's the southern mosque, 
built at the end, built in the early eighth century, uh, and set it on fire. He gutted the southeastern wing. Uh, of course, riots resulted. Guess what? Always riots after these events. Muslim riots blamed Jews. 1981. 1981, a very interesting uh, series of events. Um, workers, including some from the Misrata Betot, from the religious ministry, were digging debris before they opened up the temple, the, the, the Kotel tunnels, the Western Wall tunnels. That was all archaeological area, and the area you've walked in the tunnels before, the area right near where they identify as the cave. Yeah, you can walk in the tunnels, that's fine. Um, but there's an area there that actually goes in. And they were digging in, in what was an ancient synagogue, a little alcove area called the cave. They actually started digging in, because you know what's under the Temple Mount, that whole labyrinth um, of a complex of tunnels, and they're there till today. They actually got in and saw some of these tunnels that go way down, way down into tunnels that Shlomo HaMelech established, that Yoshiao HaMelech put down there. What did he put down there? What did Shlomo put down there first? Remember? The Mishkan. The Mish- all the elements of the Mishkan. He didn't need to the base of Mikdash. What did Yoshiao, what did the Gemara and Yomit put down there? No, that was later. That was later. What did Yoshiao HaMelech put down there? The man, the flask of man. Don't, don't forget the oil, the mishcha, the shem and the mishcha. And don't forget, we just had this thing the other day. The achbarim, achbar, achbarim v'tchorim, the, the, the golden rats and hemorrhoids that were given to us by the police team. Many treasures, some speculate, maybe even the menorah, the Moshe, from Moshe Rabbeinu, maybe, maybe, maybe the Aaron Kodesh. And then later, right, at the beginning of the second temple, the fiery lion cub, which is really the manifestation of the Yitzhara for idolatry, all down there. So I'd like to go there too anyway. They started digging around in there. It's a whole story. I'm just summarizing here. You can look it up. It started in 1981. It's a new series. Started in 1981, and they went into this area called the Ma'ara, the cave shul from the early Arab period that was destroyed by the Crusaders in 1099. It was a water cistern in 1981, and um, they started digging around down there. And guess who discovered it? The Waqf, the Muslim religious authority on top, found out that the Jews were kind of meddling down, nosing down uh, underneath. And they got angry. And they discovered the breach. Uh, there was a whole story of Jews, of, of Arabs. The Arabs dug holes and went down into the tunnels that the Jews were digging. And they, they, they fell on each other. They fell on top of the Jews. And they started scuffling. And the, the army had to go. It was a whole conflict. Um, that's, that's what I call an ambush. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> In any case, um, the end result of the whole affair was the government, the Waqf, uh, in, uh, acted on the Israeli government. The Israeli government sealed up the entire cistern to prevent any Jews from coming in. And you can, that's what you see when you go to the coastal tunnels today. You just see what's clearly like a, an arch-shaped uh, area that was clearly filled with cement. It's definitely a Hashem's hand there. <laughs> I think so. Maybe it's premature. We're not ready to have this stuff. 1982, an Israeli soldier who was actually an American immigrant, uh, an immigrant from the United States by the name of Harry, Alan Harry Goodman, um, went crazy. He was up on the Harabayas, on the Temple Mount in 1982, and he went on a shooting rampage. He killed one, he wounded three. Jewish guy? Jewish guy, Air, um, uh, American uh, immigrant. Um, he set up, set up, that set off a week of Arab rioting around the country. Um, in 1982, also a member of Kah, of Kahani's movement, was arrested for plan- planning to blow up the Dome yes. of the Rock. I saw a movie on it. Okay, okay, another. I mean, I'm just giving you, I'm giving you some of the, some of the history of this, of this, of this 
uh, pressure cooker of a situation. He was in the yeshiva, the, the first yeshiva to go in the army. I mean, by the way, by the way, these Jews are not justified. These people are not justified. The Arab riots are every bit as cynical, meaning they find rioting is a very effective political tactic, and it works. I mean, usually they get what they want when they when they riot. Um, yeah. It's like from a halakhic standpoint, not not whether it's right or not. Be quick, because I don't want to run too over time, and I want to tie up our themes from today. Are you allowed to destroy the dome of the dome of the rock, considering it's a Muslim thing? The Gedole Taira, and there are Gedole, and we're going to meet several of them, starting tomorrow, never have endorsed that. that kind of, theoretically, it would be hypothetically possible. The Gedole have never endorsed that. They say, how do you blow up the Dome of the Rock and build a base in Mikdash? Sit and learn Taira. That's how you do it. And it goes Baruch who does what he does. Like a straight-off point, like is there allowed to be destruction on the site, you know, on the... I don't think that's a lucky issue. That's all. But Joey Sokis. Do a kind and active chesed and you put a stone in the base of Mikdash. In Yumiyanu, it says that we read a Joey Sokis that there's going to be a big earthquake there, right? It's going to destroy it. All in Hashem's hands. Today, the Mizrahi, we've said, spans a huge spectrum from the serious right wing, sometimes called Chadal. Often you find the Haredi Lumi, a figure of speech, national religious. Serious national religious, they'll be ensconced in very remote, scary Yishuvim in the, in the heart of the West Bank. In Hebron, certainly, Beit El is a big, big, uh, very, very stark uh, community, and elsewhere. Um, you have, all the way to the left, you have nominally religious, often, let's say, the Kibbutz Dati uh, is not necessarily, um, some of them are, but most of them are, are fairly weak in terms of knowledge and observance. Uh, as we've, I've started this before, their children are more likely than other religious children to deviate from their parents' ways so that sometimes their children become more from because they don't accept the mediocrity of their parents. But more common, statistically, seems to be that they go off the derech, the parents are, nom- are, are semi-religious, the kids are much less. Rarely is it a system that sustains itself from one generation to the other. Usually they're going more to the right, more to the left. To be fair, the same could be said in the Haredi world because it's hard for parents to really generate anything exactly to their kids. I just assert, and this is anecdotal, I can't defend this one empirically, but um, I, it seems to me there's a, you have a better chance of, of transmitting Torah to the next generation. No guarantees anywhere in the world. Um, certainly they have a greater problem with what's with called, uh, somebody wrote a book on the subject, the book was called the Akipah It's a play on words because the knitted keep in Hebrew is the Akipah Zruka. they knitted, Zruka being thrown away. So the same knitted keepah being thrown away, uh, at the time that the book came out in the early 90s, the author estimated that some over 50% of national religious kids growing up in national religious homes would go off the derech. Over 50%, that means you had a less than 50-50 chance of raising your kids to be from. That's a pretty big deal for people of the Taira who understand that their system is one of transmission. It's not just enough, it's not enough for me to lead a Jewish a holy, a Torah life myself, but I gotta take that to the next generation. That's fairly upsetting. Now, there's also attrition from the ranks within the Haredi world, but again, not nearly as much. Over 50% was what he researched. I don't know how you come up with these statistics. I think they're questionable. But let's say it was over 50% in the 1990s. Over 20 years later, it's not gotten better. It's only gotten worse. Whatever number you want to put out there, over 60%, it's, um, the odds are against people raising kids to become from. 
and Baruch Hashem, there are lots of exceptions to that. It depends where you're living, and some of the more serious communities that I mentioned do much better, are much more effective in transmitting Torah. Go ahead, Daniel. Wait, so do these put, so if you look at by that map, how many generations of others are in Jews? Okay, well, we talked about that yesterday too with the demographic out, um, outlook. Um, well, you have, well, you have like these, these or let me finish. Let me finish. I, 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 yeah, this is taking me longer than I thought, but I, it's, we're really doing a unit right now, and I, I, I want to um, comment because we're, we're in this in this idea. Can I can I go another five minutes? With your permission? Okay. Often one hears in this world, certainly my orthodoxy, but also in the world, the um, one hears that they're proudly anti-extremists. They don't like religious extremists as a criticism of the right-wing, Haredi, yeshivish, whatever, world. Um, Chazanish had a great response to that. He says, they often talk about being anti-extremist. What does that mean? Anyway, we just mentioned what, what extremism is all relative anyway. He says he found, he found a lot of the time when people talk about being anti-extremist, what that really meant, that was their way of rationalizing their own religious mediocrity. They actually were kind of shvach religiously. But as a way of feeling good about themselves, as feeling smug and self-satisfied, they said, well, at least you're not one of those extremists. He said, Chazanish said, you know, if I'm passionate about keeping Torah, about doing it in the best possible way, then sure, I'm an extremist. That's the beautiful extremism. Torah mandates extremism on that level. It doesn't, it, it, it doesn't advocate violence. It's spitting on it doesn't advocate spitting on anybody. That kind of extremism, if that's, that's also extremism, that's bad extremism. But extremism in terms of the positive things, of course, there's an extreme Yeret Shemayim. Extremely careful in learning Torah. Extremely committed to learning Torah, for sure. Um, I remember I, I, I was a, a director of yeshiva in this world, and I went on a, there was a conference of people who headed different yeshivas, mostly, mostly Israeli, and it lasted all day, and the themes of the conference were very much around the religious crisis in that world. They were having a real hard time. Those kids were not from, and increasingly not. And what do you do as heads, heads of seminaries and shivas and such, and how do you stem the tide? Of course, I, I, I hope I'm not exaggerating and, and, and misstating it. Baruch Hashem, there are, a lot of them are very from, but you're talking about over half, half over 50%, so a lot of them are not. And, and, and um, so I remember. Uh, Dr. Bill Berkovitz got up and gave a whole, whole discussion of how he said in embracing Torah with secular world as the modern world does, and the Dati Lumi world, they do that as well, he said they never did proper border. They never really considered that when you embrace the two, Torah often loses because the secular world is simply too seductive and it overrides, dominates, especially with the, with the, the, the demand for material success in the world. That usually is the side that wins. He said very rarely is a person, he cited Rav Soloveitchik as a rare exception to the subject, a person is able to somehow straddle the two worlds where Torah comes out on top, but the, but the secular aspect is, 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 uh, is impressive on an advanced level, but Torah always overrides it. He said the common person can't really do, he said, he said at this conference, the common person can't really do that effectively. Um, I thought it was highly ironic because after a whole day long seminar of different presentations who were bellyaching as leaders of, I, I was, I mean, I was kind of the only guy sitting there with black jacket on, um, but all these other people were definitely self-identified self Dati Lumi individuals, leaders, and they were bellyaching over what do we do to make our kids from. At the end of the conference, they say, oh, and we had, we've been, you know, a bunch of Jews together, smart Jews get together, we talked a lot, and it's not like the time was used so efficiently all the time, you know, people get around and talking about stuff. Um, so, okay, a lot of wasted time. And then it was time to dive in mincha at the end, and as I said, okay, let's dive in mincha, we'll do the short mincha. 
which uh, we do here, we do here, but you should be aware, it's such a, it's such a thing, it's really been the effort. It's really problematic. So I remember standing there in Mincha thinking, they're worried about how to generate Tyra, uh, you know, to the next generation, but they themselves are willing to compromise on their own, on their own observance. I, I found it highly ironic. Um, one also tends to find that there's a, there's a disproportionate, a huge amount of anti-Haredi sentiment, sentiment in that world. Sometimes it defines the religious out, outlook. What do you stand for? They're not always so sure. But I'm not Haredi. And they all articulate, they'll bash the Haredi left and right. It's a, a very common phenomenon. Um, Naftali Bennett, representing the, uh, the Bayez Yehudi, which is this party nowadays, uh, he represents this constituency. Um, I, I assert that sometimes that's fueled by a sense of, of spiritual inferiority. When you're compromising, when you're, let's say, mediocre yourself, so the natural defense mechanism is to say, well, they're just, they're evil, they're extremists. Um, there are Talmudic Chachamim in this world. Um, because the movement's not focused on Talmud Torah, they produce fewer world-class scholars, and even those scholars that they have generally don't command authority. If they have unpopular opinions, um, they're ignored. They're, they're, they're marginalized. Um, we've talked about this before, why they haven't produced Gedolim since Rav Kook, because they don't accept Gedolim. They, they find a rabbi who espouses their ideas. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm over time and I have way too much more to say, so I'm going to have to continue over tomorrow, uh, pick up pick up from here, um, and then and then tomorrow we're going to talk about some some of the gedolim from the uh, from the modern era.